Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, I'm really excited today because we are kicking off a brand new series of talks on the parables. For those who might be new to the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus, the preferred method that Jesus would use to teach people would be these short allegorical stories that would point to a greater uh, theme or virtue. And this wasn't specific only to Jesus. A lot of Jewish rabbis would do this. And throughout all of scripture, this was a preferred way to get a point across. And that shouldn't surprise us because as human beings, we are creatures of story. We always have been, we always will be. We make sense of reality by what uh, philosophers call are the meta-narrative, the larger story we believe we're living into. And similarly, Jesus comes to tell us a story. He comes to tell us not just a story or a myth or a fable, but to tell us the meta-narrative, the larger story of God. And he does this under the umbrella of what is called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It is the number one thing Jesus preached about more than anything else. And everything that Jesus preached about could fit uh, within that uh, realm, within that category. And so as we dive into these series of conversations, it's important for us to take a step back and to ask ourselves questions. What are parables, why are they important, and that'll land us on what is the kingdom of God. And so hopefully today this will frame uh, the next few Sundays for us uh, as we move forward as a church. Uh, So three things that you should know about parables, specifically the parables that Jesus taught. Number one is that they are to move us from the abstract to action. Secondly, the parables move us from disillusionment to awareness. And thirdly, they move us from an earthly reality to a kingdom reality. Uh, The first point is that there is a stark difference between Greek thought and Jewish thought. And Jesus, being Jewish, uh, teaches uh, very much in line with Jewish thought of that day where Greeks are famously known, even to this day, for their philosophy, for the abstract nature of their thought, uh, that the way the Jewish rabbis and teachers would instruct was very concrete, is very practical, and it was always moving the people in their teaching towards living something out. A matter of fact, the idea of listening for Jewish people involved obedience. And so with that, I love William Barclay, who's just a brilliant biblical scholar, says there was one basic difference between the Greek and Jewish mind. The Greek loved argument for argument's sake. Whether or not the argument ever reached any conclusion did not greatly matter. The Jew, on the other hand, was intensely interested on reaching conclusions. And further, these conclusions had to be such that led to actions. So one of the reasons we're studying the parables this summer is 
is because we live in a world that is heavily influenced by Greek thought, meaning we love ideas. We love, um, we love to just think about and to theologize and to, to use philosophy and just to think about the obscure. But it's important for us to realize as followers of Jesus, there is something about our apprenticeship under him that involves practicality. It is how we live. So these stories are not some ethereal thing that we're trying to figure out and to debate about. Uh, there are things that are to move us towards a way of living. So it's a question we can always ask ourselves. What are we learning about how to live? The second thing is that parables move us from disillusionment to awareness. Uh, the Archbishop William Temple in the 1930s says, For Jesus, the whole wide world was the garment of the living God. Jesus taught men to see the operation of God in regular and the normal, in the rising of the sun, in the falling of the rain, and the growth of the plant. So one of the beautiful things about parables is that it uses everyday life, the things around us, the earthiness of what's going on around us to help draw us to the spiritual, to draw us to who God is. And oftentimes we compartmentalize God to certain segments of our life. But I love what, what William Temple points out is that everything in life is pointing us back to its creator. So when you see a sunset, when you watch a plant grow, when you're walking, when you're driving, it's not just to kind of the ancient culture. Everything about life has the ability to be pointing us towards who God is and even you. Uh, one of my friends, Andrew Henneforth, has this saying that we are to be living parables, that there's something about how we live and who we are that actually draws people's attention towards a loving, creative, merciful God. So it moves us from, uh, moves us from this disillusionment to God is only segmented to parts of our lives to an increased awareness that God is everywhere. And then lastly, parables move us from an earthly reality to a kingdom reality. And this is probably the most significant thing, specifically when it comes to Jesus' parables, is that all 30 or so of the parables found within the Synoptic Gospels are telling us something specific. They're all painting a picture of what the kingdom of God is, uh, which means we had better know an understanding of what the kingdom of God is uh, so that when we approach these stories, we're not just thinking that they're just some obscure set of say, sayings or um, fables or things like that. No, no, these are specific stories from real life that are pointing us towards who God is and his rule and reign. So by definition, the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of the king. So if you think about someone's kingdom, it's, it's, it's the, the perimeter, the presence of that king's rule and reign in that area. So when Jesus shows up, he has this message of the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God in the present reality that we're encompassing. It is not 
um, a message of somewhere far off in the distance clouds, somewhere we're gonna go and we're gonna die. It is the pronouncement that God's rule and reign is invading earth. It is coming here. Jesus oftentimes say it's at hand. It's as close as you and me. And so for us to be watchful, what is this kingdom? So I wanted to give you just five defining things about Jesus's idea about the kingdom of God. And again, all of this is gonna help frame the rest of the conversations we're gonna have this summer. But five things that we know that were a part of the mindset Jesus had when it comes to the kingdom. Number one is that this is an inaugurated kingdom and this is an inauguration moving to a consummation. And what I mean by that and what other theologians much smarter than me mean by that is when Jesus came and he was born and pronounces this, it is the inauguration of the kingdom of God, meaning it has not fully come yet. At the same time, it's not gonna come someday, it's here and now. It is where everywhere he went and everywhere his disciples go, even to this day, we are ushering in this new rule and reign from the previous rule and reign, which was of the world, which was of darkness, which was of the enemy. And so the kingdom of God is now ushering in, is a changing of, of the influence and the presence, and that is the existence of the church. We are to bring about the rule and reign of God that came through Jesus Christ. It's an inaugurated kingdom as we wait for the Revelation 22 consummation of the kingdom. Number, number two is that in Jesus' mind, the kingdom of God is moving us from creation, I'm sorry, from chaos back to creation. If you remember the opening lines of Genesis, it tells a story of God's beautiful earth, his blessed earth, and how because of uh, the inception of sin, it moves from God's good earth and creation into chaos, into sin, into missing its mark. And so when Jesus comes, what you see him do is he moves from the chaotic reality of this broken world and he puts things back into how they were intended to be in creation. He does this when he heals people, right? He brings them out of the curse of sickness or even death and brings them back into order of health. We see him do this with nature. We see them do this when there's winds and storms and he puts calm. He sees it when he does this with deliverance, when people are possessed and oppressed by demons and he goes and delivers them. He's moving the world from chaos back towards its intended creative order. And this is what the kingdom of God is always doing. It's taking brokenness and chaos and resetting it according to God's created order. The third thing, and often what is missed in our Western culture, is that the kingdom of God is the fulfillment of Israel's story. We can't fully understand the kingdom without fully understanding Israel's story because the king of that kingdom is Yahweh. It is the Jewish God of the Old Testament who is coming and ruling and reigning. It is the descendant of King David, the promised fulfillment of Abraham and Moses. And so one of the beautiful things about the Old Testament that oftentimes we just don't know what to do with is it's telling a story. But if you know anything about the Old Testament is it has an abrupt ending with no resolution. 
It just ends. It ends with Israel in exile. And it ends with silence. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it is the breaking of silence. It is the fulfillment of Israel's story. It is the king finally coming and taking its rightful place that has been prophesied for hundreds and thousands of years before. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story. It's a, it's a beautiful element that oftentimes gets remissed. N.T. Wright in his book, How God Became King, uh, phrases it like this. The point the gospel writers are eager to get across, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is in fact the climax of the story of Israel, even though nobody was expecting such a thing and many didn't like the look of it when it was presented to them. So Israel, and by Israel, I mean the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, we're all looking for this coming kingdom, but oftentimes they missed it because it came in a package and it came in a way that they were not looking for. They were looking for a sword and instead they got a cross. They were looking for a, a conquering victorious general, but the conquering and the victory came through the laying down of the life of the spotless lamb, but nonetheless, this is the fulfillment of Israel's story. Um, number four, the announcement of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom, the inauguration of the kingdom has to do with the idea that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is. There is a specific thread, specifically in John's gospel, that makes a very clear point that the announcement of Jesus coming as the king was a direct statement against the, the kingdom of that world at that time was Caesar, it was Rome. But it's not just Caesar 2000 years ago, Caesar. It is all of the Caesars that have come since then. It is a proclamation that God's rule and reign is distinct from every earthly rule and reign. Every earthly government, every earthly dictator, king, president, you name it. Although God can use them, it is not the kingdom of God. And this is so fundamental for us to recognize that although God is active within governments and within nations and with rulers, we are never to mistake that our allegiance lies to a different kingdom. This is why in John's gospel, one of the most heartbreaking, horrific moments is when Jesus is about to be crucified, the religious rulers, the ones who are supposed to lift up Yahweh as king, the high priest, looks at Pontius Pilate and says, we have no king but Caesar. And this is why when Jesus was lifted on the cross, it says, King of the Jews. I mean, this is a subversive overthrow, not, not from with swords and horses and governments overthrowing Rome, but from the inside out. It is a proclamation, our king is Jesus. N.T. Wright famously says, if Jesus is king, Caesar is not. And so we need to recognize this pronouncement of the kingdom is a radical, it's a radical statement. It's inaugurated, it's not consummated. It moves from chaos back to creation. 
It's the fulfillment of Israel's story from a remnant to their purpose of redemption. It's a proclamation of Caesar is Lord. I'm sorry, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And lastly, the kingdom of God is not just a passive longing, but rather it is prophetic participation. This is one thing we need to know about the parables is that when Jesus is describing the kingdom of God, it is to activate his people, his apprentices, his disciples, and you are now participating in bringing about this kingdom where the Jewish people were passively waiting, some of them not so passively, some of them trying to bring it about by violence and things like that. Jesus is inviting the misfits, the outcasts, the people that the world has forgotten and says, you get to be prophetic participants in bringing about my kingdom. So again, just for review, the kingdom of God is, a, is about inauguration to consummation, is about chaos to creation, it's about Israel as a remnant to Israel as redemption. See, if Caesar is Lord, then Jesus, Jesus is not. And at the same time, if Jesus is king, Caesar is not. And lastly, it's moving from passive longing to prophetic participation. So with all that in mind, with thinking about how, how parables work from abstract to action, from disillusionment to awareness, from an earthly reality to a kingdom reality, I want to leave us with a parable. It's not going to be a second sermon, um, but I want us just to sit with this as we begin this journey through the parables. And it's this story. Matthew 13 says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and brought it. So Jesus tells these two parables back to back and just, again, just to get us ready for this summer, these stories of the kingdom, these parables of the kingdom, three, three thoughts of that parable. Number one, the kingdom is like hidden treasure. I think a lot of times we look at that verse and we're like, why is it hidden? It seems like God's being exclusive with it. That's not the point of this parable. The point is not the exclusive exclusivity of the kingdom, but the preciousness of the kingdom. There is the same way the most valuable things in our lives we keep safe. I think about my guitar I got when I was 18. That thing is always in a case. I don't even leave it out. Why? Not because I'm trying to keep it from someone, but because it has a nature that is precious to it. And the kingdom of God in the same way has a worth and a preciousness to it that we can never even fathom. Which leads to the second thing that we need to point out is that there's joyful anticipation. So once this kingdom is found out, that it says that the man hid it again, right? He, he sold all he had and then goes back to where he hid it. And then that is his reward. There's this, I love it. With, with joy in his heart, he did this. There's something about the kingdom of God that it should fill us with joy, that should move us in the direction of this is better than anything we've ever found. And the last thing is this, 
is that at the end of these parables, there is a distinct picture of a reward, of a pearl of great price, of a treasure that's been buried again, and it's worth giving up everything for. Can I just tell you something? The kingdom of God, the thing we'll study all summer long through these parables, is worth more than you could ever imagine. Worth so much for, it's worth giving everything up for. And so you might be sitting here and just being like, well, that seems obscure. What's, what is it? What's the reward of the kingdom? And here's what I'd leave you with. The reward of the kingdom is the king. The centerpiece of any kingdom is its king. The reward of any kingdom is its king. And when we have found Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing him, like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, nothing else compares. And I want to invite you this summer to reevaluate the worth, the preciousness, the joy, and the reward of the kingdom of God. Because according to Jesus, the king of that kingdom, it's worth everything. So let's move away from obscurity to practicality. Let's live a life this week that would prioritize the king of the kingdom, would give him our time, our affection, would give him our trust. Whatever you've been putting your, your trust in, whatever you've been putting your faith in, whatever you've been investing your time, money into, whatever that thing is that's getting you, would this be a turning point where it belongs to Jesus? Father, we thank you so much for your kingdom. Would it become real in our hearts and our life today, Lord Jesus? Would it be that pearl of great price? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.